Well, today we start our new series, which is on the book of Ephesians. Its subtitle is Planned in Eternity, Displayed in Community, which is what we're going to be really talking about. And this series is going to take us about nine months. So if you're in Sovereign Grace Church, welcome to Ephesians. It's really going to grow on you over the uh, next nine months or so. And I couldn't be more excited about it. It is such an amazing book. And I think to be able to do this in our first year as a church plant, when you look and examine what Paul's designed the whole book to do, it is going to be so effective and so incredible as we look at it together. So if you turn, please, to the book of Ephesians, you're going to get very used to where this is located in the Bible. It's after Galatians, before Philippians. If you can't remember it, it's go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. It's dead easy. Go eat popcorn. And we're just going to be looking today at two verses. I'm going to try and introduce you to the whole book, but in particular, I want to to understand two verses. So, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now you can see why it's going to take us nine months. (laughs) Reads as follows. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you had a hiccup or a cough, you may have missed it. So let me tell you it again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather in your book of Ephesians, Lord, I pray that our minds would be blown as we examine the greatness of your glorious plan of redemption. Lord, would you minister to all of us, to me as I teach, and to those who listen? Would we meet with you in your word? Would our lives be affected? Would we be humbled? Would we be amazed? Would we be assured as we examine the glorious truths of Ephesians, Holy Spirit, minister to us. Would we have testimonies in nine months' time of just a growing amazement in all you've done, all you are doing, and all you will do? Lord, blow us away through your word. Amen. It was about 10 years ago when my wife and I went to Niagara Falls. Do you remember that? It was so cool. It was such a good time. We had been in America for a year at the Sovereign Grace Pastors College. And at the end of that time, we decided that we would go around Niagara Falls, which wasn't that far up, just for fun and see what all the fuss was about. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I I remember as we were going along in this huge RV, which we clearly couldn't drive. We we got it just thinking, this will be so luxurious. It'll be so amazing. And as soon as we started going down the road, about 200 meters, we we realized that all you can hear is the the cutlery jangling and the pans. You think it's going to be a long two weeks. But anyway, we're going along in the RV, very excited about what we're going to see. And as soon as we got near to where Niagara Falls was, you could see it. It looked like something was on fire. You could see all this spray coming into the air, like, like this thing was erupting in flames. It was amazing. And as soon as we got close, we decided, I want to get as close as we possibly can. So I found out that you can take a lift, and it's a lift that takes you all the way to the ground, and then you get on a boat called the Maid of the Mist. And I thought, I'll have a slice of that. So Emma and I got on the Maid of the Mist, and I just absolutely loved it. They gave you these blue anoraks as you got on. 
and it was, they were nasty. I mean, you put them on you, they were sort of these disposable type things that sort of cellophane you in. And I remember just looking at Emma thinking, thank you, Jesus, that you married me before this moment, because surely after this moment, I would have been single for the rest of my life. But she was already married to me. So we wrapped ourselves in these anoraks, and the maid of the mist just started going closer and closer to Niagara Falls. And I'm just thinking, this is full on. I mean, 600,000 gallons of water come over that fall every second. That thing is hugely powerful. And the maid of the mist has decided that we are going to drive straight into it. So we're heading towards Niagara Falls. And the closer we get, we realized we're never going to make it because the water is so powerful, it's just pushing us back. And as we went around the final bend to get to Horseshoe Falls and see it in all its glory, all I remember is the collective gasp in everybody's minds and everybody's mouths. As we came around the corner and saw 600,000 gallons of water per second hitting the ground and then pushing us back as the maid of the mist is trying to push us in, there was just a collective, wow. And there was just silence as people just stood amazed at how incredible this waterfall was indeed. Well, my hope as we study Ephesians is that as we go around the corner four weeks in in this local church, That as we examine this glorious book, we would collectively be gasping and we would collectively be amazed at the glories of what are contained within this letter. See, Ephesians really is Paul's gospel of the church. In this book, he pulls back the curtain incredibly on on a plan, a glorious plan that was designed in eternity past. A plan that in all its glories began before even you and I were born. Indeed, before the world was even made. Before there was a molecule, God had created a plan in eternity past. And it was a plan, as we see in this book, of redemption. How God was going to save people. A rebellious mankind. How God was going to pluck us and take us and draw him to himself. But not only save us to one another, he was going to redeem us to each other. He decided in eternity past that he was going to take people from every tribe and language and nation. People, men and women, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, slave and free. People from all nations and all backgrounds, drawing us together in communities of local churches. And it's all going to be by his grace. Paul begins by helping us see that. That this glorious plan of salvation for the church was indeed made in eternity past. It was then fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago so that this plan could be headed up, so that this plan could be fulfilled and accomplished through the power of God's only Son. And what we see then as we examine this plan is it's not only been made in eternity past, it's not only been fulfilled in Christ, but it is now being displayed in community. It's been displayed in local churches as men and women come together And they link arms for the glory of God. And as they do life together, knowing the gospel and applying the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, as they seek to do life together for the glory of God, this book helps us see that the angels in the heavenly realms look on and see God's manifold wisdom. See, as a local church, we don't just have a duty in this world. We will see that we do because in chapter 2, we realize that we're the body. We're made up of many parts and we're the body to reflect Jesus Christ in the world. But we also have a responsibility which is out of this world, namely to reflect in the heavenly realms the great wisdom of God as the angels and the principalities look on and see how how did these people start getting along? People that were not only enemies to God but enemies to one another, how did they start getting on? And they look on and they see God's manifold wisdom 
as we'll see in this book. This book is amazing. And when we truly see it, my hope and prayer is over the next nine months that our collective responsibility and our collective response would be, wow, that's amazing. What a plan. Planned in eternity. Displayed in community. Just to give you some facts about this book as we head into it, by way of introduction, a couple of quick fire things for you. Date was written in about AD 62 or somewhere around there. It was written by the Apostle Paul. Nobody challenges that. I mean, he he helps us by the first word, Paul, tends to give it away. So he wrote the book, the Apostle Paul, and he was writing from prison in Rome. As we'll see later on in in chapter 3, he was writing it in his first imprisonment in Rome. And it was written about eight years, six to eight years before he was executed, really, for his faith. The recipients then, as we see in verse 1, are the Ephesians, the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Now, it's also understood by many scholars that although the book would have ended up there and gone to Ephesians first and then ended up there, it was also a circular letter. So unlike Romans or Corinthians, where Paul starts addressing specific people and mentioning, you know, oh, how is Harry and all that stuff, he doesn't do that in this book. And he doesn't do it because although it was going to Ephesus, it was also going to be passed around other churches in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And so it was written within that context, but written primarily to the Ephesians. And the basic structure of the book really falls into two sections. The first section is chapters 1 to 3. And in chapters 1 to 3, the six chapters altogether, in the first half of the book, the focus is on what God has done. The whole focus of the first three chapters are on doctrine and on theology and God's work and the wonder of his plan. And so for the first three chapters, we're just going to be gazing and looking at what God has done and the glories of his plan of redemption. And in chapters then through 4 and 6, the second section, it really looks then at what we are to do in response to what God has done. So having established all he's done for us, how are we to respond in that? Motivated by grace, empowered by the cross, how are we to respond to what he has already done for us? And really in our study, it's really going to cut down as follows. Chapters 1 through 3, we're going to try and do that before Christmas. So God willing, you never know, we might get it done before Christmas. We're then going to have a break before Christmas. And in January, we're going to do a very short um, series on the Psalms. God's jukebox, and we're going to start looking at how the Psalms play out in the Word of God and how incredible they all are. And then once we hit off in February again, we're going to be looking at chapters 4 through 6. And we're going to be really doing that till around May. So it's going to be 8 to 9 months, but I, I'm excited because it can change lives. And this book, when studied and examined, can be a life-changing experience. And so I make no apologies for being lengthy. In fact, I don't want to be slow so that we can suck the juice and enjoy what God is telling us through the Apostle Paul in this book of Ephesians. So what we're doing today, well today, I want to not only introduce the book to you as best I can, that's all right, if it's anybody important, we'll have a chat. I not only want to introduce the book to you, but at the same time as introducing, I want to to whet your appetite for the study. I want you to come away thinking, "I'm, I'm looking forward to this study. And really, we don't have to look any further for that than these two verses. See, how often, if we're honest, do we just skip over the greeting at the start of the book and then we get into the truth? It's because we, and I know I do, you can just think, oh, greeting, oh, that's lovely. Hi, I'm Paul to the Ephesians. Right, lovely. Let's crack on with the stuff. It's so easy to want to move on. And I know I do it. But all scripture is God-breathed. 
Every word of this is important. Paul is not just rocking up to the Ephesians saying, hey Ephesians, I'm Paul, let's get on. No, no, he's picking verses very deliberately to instruct us and feed us and help us. There is no word here out of place. There is no addition, there's no taking away. Paul has specifically chose these, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for our good. All scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God himself. And really what we find then in these first two verses as we look carefully are the four major themes of the whole book. We don't want to be skipping over the four major themes of this book. But we want to examine them and see them and enjoy them for what they are. And so in in order to both introduce the book and whet your appetite, I want us to look at those four themes. And the first one is this. The first theme that we'll find running through this whole book is, number one, the will of God. The theme of the purpose and will of God. And we see it in verse 1. He says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. That's not an accident. That's not an addition. That's a, oh, by the way, it's very purposeful. See, in this verse, Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. In particular, an apostle just simply means a messenger, a one who is appointed to bear truth on behalf of Christ. Paul was chosen by Jesus Christ to represent him as his messenger, to brandish the gospel and embody the gospel and then take it out to the Gentiles. He had a huge calling on his life as an apostle. But we miss the point if that's all we see. The real gold nugget of what he's saying here in this very first part of the verse is this. He, he wants to understand that, hi, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, but he also wants to understand and drive into us the context of his calling. I'm Paul, an apostle chosen by the will of God. So you may think of that as no big deal, but this is actually vitally important. And it's vitally important because one of the main things that Paul is going to be doing throughout this whole letter is helping us see that our lives and our responses and the way we live are all responses to the incredible will of God. Our lives are all in the context of a great God who has purpose and will. So right here in verse 1, he draws attention to the fact that, you know what, your lives and your local churches are not being driven by you. They're being driven by God. Everything is according to God. Everything is according to His will and His purpose. And Paul knew that up close and personal with his own story. I mean, we introduced ourselves last week to Paul in Acts chapter 7. That's where we first see him. The first time we ever see Paul, he's holding coats while people that that are belonging of the coats are stoning Stephen. Paul was an avid opposition to Christians. He hated Christians. And he counted it his own personal mission to arrest Christians and if if he's enabled to, to stone them, to execute them for their faith. And yet in Acts 9, the risen Jesus Christ meets Paul. He encounters the Apostle Paul and in a moment changes his life. Paul had a plan for his life and he was executing his plan. He was going after Christians seeking to kill them. But God had a plan for Paul's life which was far greater. A plan that overrode anybody else's plan. A plan that he came to break in on Paul's life and in a moment changed his life and not only changed him towards Christianity, he then called him to be a messenger of the good news to the Gentiles. See, Paul knew up close and personal through his conversion who is really in control of his life. And he established then very quickly, it's really not me. It's God. It's his irresistible grace. It's his calling. 
It's his oversight of our lives which ultimately counts. And one of the things then that we understand in this book, and we will see all the way running through this book, is the incredible theme that God really is in control. As we will see time and time again, the will and purpose of God. And I'm excited about that. Because I think that will bear serious fruit in our lives. See, if you are like me, then you're probably tempted to think the world revolves around you. You know, when you speak to a teenager, one of the challenges of teenagers is they have quite a small worldview. It's usually about this big, you know what I'm saying? It's quite small. And, and I never, sadly, I never grew out of that worldview. I can think that, that, that a lot of it responds and revolves around me. But this book is going to help us see it's not about you. It's about God. It's about His will. It's about his purpose. It's about his oversight of your life. One of the things that I have a habit of doing, which is just so wrong, and you should never do this, but I'll tell you anyway. I, I like it when you're looking through people's wedding albums. You know, it's just pretty cool. But the problem is, I always say, have you got a wedding album? Particularly if I've been to the wedding. Is there any way I can look at your wedding album? And they say, certainly. And they think I'm going to be looking for them. But no, I'm looking for myself. I'm going to examine your wedding album to see, do I look good? How did I do? You know, how did, did, I, did my hair look okay that day? And so we, 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 we always have the same proceedings. Emma's laughing because she knows it's true. And we sit on the sofa. Oh, isn't this lovely? Oh, yes, bridesmaids. Yes, yes. Oh, bride, lovely. Oh, yes, look at this one. And there I am. And there's a crowd shot. And you're like, Emma, look at that. That's me. That's a bit problematic. Don't do that. But I think when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to life, we, we can all have a temptation to do that. To, where do I fit? Where, where do I belong? Where, where am I in this story? How do I need to respond? Paul is going to stop us in our tracks on that. And he is going to help us see, you know what? In this photograph, it's not about you. It's about the photographer. It's about the author. It's about the one who's taking the photos. It's about the one who is sovereignly ordaining all things. It is about his will and purpose and not primarily you. This book isn't primarily about us. It's about God. And how wonderful to be able to then soak in that. Paul introduces us to that truth by saying, Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Notice. Second theme then, he carries on just a few words later. The second theme is the theme of being set apart. He says it this way, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Listen, to the saints. We can brush over that. Isn't there an AFL team here called the Saints? All right. I, you see, I'm not too up to speed with AFL. But, you know, we hear then saint, and we think, oh, that's a nice football team. Or it just means no big deal. It's just not that impressive. It's like, oh, oh great, yes, saints. But to the Ephesian readers, that would have been huge. To the Ephesian readers of this letter, that would have meant so much. You see, to be called a saint means to literally be called set apart or holy. And in the Old Testament, so the whole premise of being set apart is set apart for God, set apart by God as his chosen people, as his people, as his children, as people who he's going to care for, they are going to be his people and he is going to be their God. That was all encompassed when you said the word saint. The only time this was ever used is to refer to Israel, God's chosen people. Whenever you heard the word mentioned, it was always referring to Israel, the people, the, the children of Abraham, the people that God had chosen as his people. But here, the Jew of Jews and the Hebrew of Hebrews writes to a bunch of pagans like us. He writes to a group of people that have not grown up as Israel, have not grown up worshipping God. They've grown up on playstations, hanging out, and in the Ephesians case, worshipping idols. All these people, that is their history. And yet Paul turns up and says, to you. 
the saints in Ephesus. That would have blown their world apart to realize through Jesus Christ, what he is saying is we're now like Israel. We too now through Christ are God's chosen people. People who he's going to care for and love. People who are called his own through the cross and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes says, In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the people of Israel and sometimes even the angels were given the honored title saints. Therefore, as Marcus Barth explains, by using the same designation, the author bestows on all his pagan-born hearers a privilege formerly reserved for Israel. Applying this word saints to pagan Greeks was mind-boggling to those with a Jewish background. Hebrew detractors considered it a rape of sacred vocabulary. But from the Christian perspective, it was a fitting word to celebrate the miracle of God's grace. It would have been so wonderful then to them to receive this letter to the saints. He's referring to us. People who through Jesus Christ have put their faith in Christ were now called saints, God's people. A people who he will care for, a people who he will love, a people whom he will never, ever let go. Paul wants them to see that this is all part of God's plan. This is all part of God's plan of glorious redemption. God's plan to make it to call a people to himself from every tribe and language and nation. A people to himself made up of all kinds, both genders, slaves and free, young and old, clever and foolish, large and small. He wants to help them see it doesn't matter anymore your nationality and who you are. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are grafted into the body. You are made you who wants aliens, who wants strangers. God is taking you and he's not only saving you, he's pulling you together. And you who were strangers who were far off are now being built together as fellow citizens as parts of a body, as members of a household. He is knitting us together into a glorious dwelling place for God, as we'll see time and time again in this book. Paul wants the Ephesians to see, you're in that. You're in. You're a saint. You've been set apart by God for God. And now he is weaving you together for his glory and your good. And the very angels are looking on with, a, with amazement. And with worship to God as they see his wisdom displayed in you. John Stott says, One of the chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. We emphasize that Christ dies for us to redeem us from all iniquity, rather than to purify himself a people of his own. We think of ourselves more as Christians than churchmen. And our message is more, good, more of good news, of a new life, than of new society. Listen to this. No one can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel. For Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It set forth God's eternal purpose to create through Jesus Christ a new society, which stands out in bright relief against the somber backdrop of the old world. Folks, when you understand God's passion for the local church, when you understand the way he feels about the church as displayed in this book, I think it can transform in a moment the way you view church. Church is not just something we tag along to now and again. Church is, is the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan. 
It always has been and it always will be. It is the home of the gospel. It is where people link arms and apply the gospel that their lives are changed. It is the venue where people link arms and empower themselves in the gospel and take it out to communities. And as the communities see, they see something different in the body. God is passionate about the local church. He is amazed for the local church, so amazed that Ephesians 5.25 tells us he died for her. You want to know how God feels about the church? Well, examine Ephesians 5.25. He so loved this bride that he gave his life for her. That's what church is. And that's what we're going to read about in the book of Ephesians. And so Paul introduces to us cleverly in the second part of verse 1. To the saints. To you. You now have been set apart. He then continues with this. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now that is not a mistake. It is not a mistake of the guys who are translating it because it would read better, would it not, and are faithful to Christ Jesus. You think that, that would make a bit more sense. You know, the, the, the good dudes, the one that are doing well. Now this is very deliberate to the faithful in Christ Jesus. See, because the third theme that we're going to see running through this book is a theme of what it means to be in Christ. The theme of being in Christ. Paul deliberately doesn't say to, because he wants us to know you're in. And one of the themes that he runs all the way through this book that he wants us to know, that he wants us to enjoy, that he wants us to rejoice over, is the truth that as Christians, you have been united with Christ, and you are in Christ Jesus. We see this phrase, or, or variants of this phrase, time and time again. I mean, in the first few verses that we're going to be doing over the next month, in verses 3 to 14 alone, that phrase is repeated 11 times. You get the message that he really wants you to get it. In verse 3, he says, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, We have been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Verse 11, In Him... We haven't obtained an inheritance. Paul wants us to know that you have been united with Christ, and he wants that, that truth to yield and yield an incredible power in our lives. Remember a few weeks ago when we looked at the gospel and the ripples? This is all throughout this book. The gospel in him. Boom. Well, what? Oh, you've been adopted. All right. All right. In him. Boom. Oh, you've been chosen. He saved you. He's forgiven you. He's allowing the ripples of the gospel to change our lives as he sees. You aren't just somebody who is called and set apart to worship God. No, when God sees you, what what do you think God sees you as? When you are in your own thinking about the way God views you, what do you think? This book informs to help us what we think. Because if you're a Christian, when God sees you, he sees you in Christ and Christ in you. That truth is life-changing. And when you grasp that through the book of Ephesians, lives are changed. It changes your understanding not only of the gospel, but of the application of the gospel. As you see, this is the way God thinks of you. This is the way God feels about you. This is his commitment to you. And so to know and enjoy what we have in Christ, to know and enjoy the riches of his grace towards us, to know and enjoy the riches that are now at our disposal as Christians, that's one of Paul's aims. And so he says to them right here, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And note all the way through how many times it starts talking about in, united with, in. John Stott says, to be in Christ 
is to be personally and viably united with Christ. As branches are to the vine and members to the body, and thereby also to Christ's people, to be a Christian is in essence to be in Christ, one with him and with his people. When we see this truth, it changes lives. And Paul introduces it to us here in verse 1. The fourth theme then comes in verse 2, where he says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is really unusual. And this is in part a, a strange greeting because it actually incorporates two traditional greetings. See, the first thing that he says there, grace, charis, is actually the traditional greeting of the Greeks. And so when Greeks would talk to each other, they'd say, charis, grace to you. But then he is at the same time switches to the Jewish greeting. Shalom, peace for you. So he starts talking to them, and right up front he's saying, okay, grace to you, Karis, shalom to you, peace. We don't overlook that. We shouldn't overlook that because what Paul is doing very significantly is introducing us to a fourth theme which will run throughout the whole book. See, one of the reasons I am so excited about this book is because it gives us an opportunity to see grace upon grace upon grace. It gives us opportunity to point to the great photographer every single week as we see it's all about him. It's all about his grace in the first place. We're only here because of his grace. We're only still breathing because of his grace. And what is our hope to make it? Oh, that's his grace. This book breathes of a grace, an undeserved favor that we did not earn, that we did not work for, but God in his grace lavished upon us day after day after day and still does. And the second thing then, peace, is just an effect of that grace. Because of his grace, because of his salvation, you are now at peace with God. So in this book, he talks about grace and peace many times. And that is really the fourth reason why I am so excited to be looking at it. Because it changes lives. Lives can so, be so screwed up by being legalistic. Lives can be so screwed up by being condemned. Lives can be so confused when we spend all our time trying to work our way to God. This book changes lives as you realize Christianity is not about me working my way for God. It is about God working his way to us, calling us out, saving us, helping us, holding us, so that now not one is missing. Will we make it? Oh, you bet your life we will. How do you know? Because of Jesus Christ and because of God, and he doesn't lie. It's not about us. It's about him holding us in the grip of his grace. So it's funny, isn't it? Two verses that you think, oh, all right, well, they quickly skip over that. They hold the truth to the book. They hold the themes that then run as train tracks through the whole of the rest of this book. And so I want you to look out for them and to think of them so that as we're reading the different passages, you realize, oh, that's, that was that. Did you see how what he said in verse 1 then runs all the way through? And so here's a few suggestions just as we close as to how you can prepare yourself for this study. It's going to take nine months, so I want you to be prepared. <laughs> and I want you to be able to get as much out of this as we can. So there's a few suggestions which I think will help you and help us all position ourselves for what, for what this book is about. Number one, read the entirety of Ephesians in one sitting. It ain't going to take you very long. It's only a letter. You know, and, and I would encourage you to do this. If you've got a letter of your boyfriend or your girlfriend or if you've married your husband or your wife, you'd hope so anyway. But if you've got a letter, 
You, you would read it in its entirety, right? You wouldn't just read it, read, you know, oh, well, I've only got time to fill in five minutes at the moment. You'd think, oh, well, what else has he got to say? And yet we pick and choose with God's, with God's letters as if, oh, it's no big deal, we just pick and choose. No, no, it's a letter. And he wrote it as a letter that he wants them to understand as a letter in its entirety. It'll take you about 20 minutes to read it through, tops. It would be great exercise to read it through. I love to meditate on Scripture. That's good, and I'd encourage you to do that. But there's also a time just to read it and scan what we're going to be looking at so we're more up to speed with what this book is about. Do it a few times, and it'll help you. Number two, study this letter in your devotions. I'll be trying to let you know about once a month, at the start of each month, I'll let you know what's coming up, so how we're going to be splitting up the book for that month. It'd be great to read it in the week. So by the time we come here, you know what verses we're on, and you're already starting to think through. What is that about? How does that work? So that the truths can be ministering and and reaching to ourselves. Number three, buy and use an ESV study Bible. You'll notice I always read from the ESV. That's because that's what Sovereign Grace does. And we do that really because this is probably the closest to Greek we can get and then still understand. You know, there are some really literal things and you think, that's great. It's very close. I have no idea what it's saying. This is helpful because it's very close but at the same time, it's written in such a way that we can actually read it and understand it. So I'll always be reading from the ESV. If you've got an NIV, that's okay. If you've got a King James, that's okay. But we're not in the 1800s. You might want to update. And a great thing to update to is the ESV study Bible. We sell them at the back at the bookshop. If you haven't got any money, rob some. Just do all you can to get an ESV study Bible. Whatever is necessary to purchase it, now that would be ironic, wouldn't it? How did you afford that? I stole for the Bible. You know, ignore that. Scrap that. Delete it off the MP3, whatever we do before we get sued. But buy an ESV study Bible. 